Spring into reading this season with the Biblio Lifestyle 2024 Spring Reading Guide. In this season's guide, I've handpicked 21 of the best new books and I've organized them across six categories. So whether you're looking for a romance novel that will give you a happily ever after, a thrilling mystery to keep you guessing, or an immersive historical fiction book, this guide has a book or three or seven just for you. Now, if 21 books sounds like too much for you, there's a minimalist reads list in the guide, which includes a list of six must-read books from across genres. But wait, that's not all. The spring reading guide also includes fun recipes, spring activities and lifestyle tips. So head on over to springreadingguide.com and download your copy of the guide. That's springreadingguide.com and download your free copy of the 2024 spring reading guide. So download your free copy and discover your next favourite book. Happy reading! Have you downloaded your free copy of the Biblio Lifestyle 2023 Spring Reading Guide? It's a free downloadable PDF guide that shares some of the best new books of the season, along with a list of fun things to do, spring-themed recipes, and tips to help improve your reading life. So visit springreadingguide.com to download your free copy of the 2023 Spring Reading Guide. That's springreadingguide.com for your free copy of the 2023 Spring Reading Guide. Now, on to the episode. I'm Victoria from Biblio Lifestyle, and you're listening to the Reader's Couch Podcast, the show that will help you bridge the gap between living a full and busy life to one where you're reading, learning new things, and having fun. It's Throwback Thursday, and in today's episode, I'm sharing the audio from four authors who shared their books at the inaugural Epigraph Literary Festival in April 2022. Three of these authors had books with character-driven novels, and one author had a page-turning memoir. So if you love reading literary fiction and memoirs, stay tuned. Oh, hi. If you like the show, can you please leave a review wherever you listen to your podcast? Especially if you're listening on Apple, because you know, it seems to really matter over there. Besides, you don't even have to write anything. Leaving five stars will do. If you don't like the show, however, well, you know, that's your choice. But if you do like the show, it's a great way to help spread the word about the podcast and show your support. Believe me, I'm incredibly grateful. Alrighty, now on to the show. Well, hello there, and welcome to another episode of the Reader's Couch podcast. It's Throwback Thursday, and in today's episode, I'm sharing the audio from four authors who shared their books at the inaugural Epigraph Literary Festival in April 2022. Three authors had books with character-driven novels, and one author had a page-turning memoir. So if you love reading literary fiction and memoirs, then this episode is just for you. 
But before we get started, I want to invite you to join us at our next virtual festival from Thursday, April 27th through to Saturday, April 29th, 2023. Our three-day bookish celebration will have an amazing author lineup, some great speakers and fun sessions. So visit epigraphlitfest.com to register. Again, that's epigraphlitfest.com to register and I really hope to see you there. Okay, so now back to today's episode. In today's podcast and in every Throwback Thursday from now until the next event, which starts on April 27th, I will be sharing the audio from the author sessions here on the podcast. Today, we are sharing the audio from three literary fiction authors and one author who shared her memoir at the April 2022 festival. You will be hearing from Christine Candic Torres, the author of The Girls in Queens, Lisa Bird Wilson, author of Probably Ruby, Nina Lacour, author of Yerba Buena, and Satania Dakers, author of the memoir Dinner for One. So I hope you enjoy the audio from the authors sharing their books at the festival. And you can find a link with a list of all their books in the show notes. So let's get into the episode. First, I'd like to introduce you to Christine Candic Torres, the author of the novel The Girls in Queens. Hi, my name is Christine Candic Torres. I'm a novelist and a native New Yorker, though I am calling in today from Connecticut, where I currently live. I am excited to have the opportunity to talk to you all today about my debut novel, The Girls in Queens, coming out June 14th, 2022, from Harper Via. Set primarily during the New York Mets 2006 playoff run, The Girls in Queens explores the joy, the complexity, and the furious loyalty of female friendship. The story focuses on two young Latinas named Brisma and Kelly, who will do anything for each other growing up uh, along Clement Moore Avenue in Queens. While Brisma is more of the wallflower type to the alluring and vibrant Kelly, the two remain bonded together as best friends, as Mets fans, and as survivors until high school when Brian, the local baseball hero, begins dating Brisma and Kelly was not built to be a third wheel. Later on in college, they all reconnect as Mets fans and their friendships are put to the ultimate test when Brian is accused of sexual assault. At first, the girls rally to support him. And while Kelly remains staunchly by his side, Brisma starts to have doubts as memories of her relationship with him begin to resurface. As Brisma embarks on this journey to discover the truth once and for all, the girls are forced to contend with whether their shared history is enough to sustain their future. The novel is called The Girls in Queens, which obviously literally refers to the characters in the book. These are girls in Queens, New York. But I also chose the title because it suggests the children or the young girls inside all of us, which is to say what happened to us as children, as young girls that made us into the queens or the grown women that we are today. The novel is told in alternating timelines between 1996, 2000, and 2006, and it explores the furious loyalty of young women, the complications of sexual assault allegations in communities of color, and the danger in forgetting that sometimes monsters hide in plain sight. 
I wrote this book for many reasons. Much has been said about believing women in the wake of the Me Too movement and the Time Up movement, which of course I agree with. But what I wanted to explore was why we have to say that in the first place. Why don't we believe women? Why as women do we not believe others? Why as sexual assault survivors do we sometimes not believe others when they come forward with their own allegations? I wanted to dive into that. How did we get here? Who taught us to protect the men in our lives? Uh, in particular in communities of color, in the Latino community, who taught us to privilege the lives of men of color who already have so many obstacles stacked against them over our own lives? In order to do that, in order to explore those questions, I wanted to set up this deep, intimate, powerful friendship between young girls and, and to set them in a world that insists on either ignoring or silencing them. I wanted to write about those kinds of intense friendships that we have early uh, in childhood that are sometimes built for survival, that are necessary to survive. And there's a lot of beauty in that, but it's also it also can be frightening and sometimes can end up being sort of toxic, codependent. There is as much love and joy in this this novel as there is heartbreak and loneliness, which I think sums up the nature of a lot of early friendships between girls and young women. Um, and I set their story against the backdrop of the 2006 Los Mets team, which were one of the first predominantly Black and Latino teams. If And if not, they were at least the first time that we were marketed to. We were included. We were the audience. Latinos and kids of color were the audience during those years under the leadership of Omar Minaya. And it felt like that felt like a beautiful marriage of all the topics that I wanted to explore. You know, these characters had years of learning to accept uh, heartbreak and defeat as Mets fans, uh, but also as neglected young girls. And the lead up to the playoffs in 2006 serves as a nice parallel to the reckonings that Brisma and Kelly have to contend with in their adulthood. And they have to decide sort of whether to swing for the stars or go down looking. I am proud of writing a novel heavily influenced by baseball that centers young Latino and Asian fans as its main characters. That centers working class, first and second generation immigrants, kids of color who felt represented for the first time and, and represented in their own hometown of Queens, New York, which is, if not the most, one of the most diverse counties in the United States, if not the world. I hope the girls in Queens will encourage readers to consider or reconsider the ways in which they have contributed to perpetuating rape culture, societal level, but also on a micro interpersonal level as well. And I hope that the book will prompt discussions about how we can honor or acknowledge where these cycles began for us in our personal history, and also commit to being better friends, better sisters, better ancestors going forward. Thank you so much for listening to me today. <laughs> the Girls and Queens will be out and available in your local bookstores June 14th, 2022 from Harper Via. Course pre-orders are always welcome. Thank you again, and I hope you enjoy the book. Next, I'd like to introduce you to Lisa Bird Wilson, the author of the novel Probably Ruby. And say, Tanishi, hello. My name is Lisa Bird Wilson, 
and I'm the author of Probably Ruby, a novel. Marcy, thank you very much to the Epigraph Literary Festival. I'm very pleased to be a part of this festival, a free festival to celebrate literature and the literary lifestyle. People often ask me about the title of my book, Probably Ruby, and the book is about Ruby, who is Indigenous and adopted. She's been raised in a white home, in a white family, and really assimilated into the uh, into a culture that's not hers. So Ruby's background is as a Métis and Cree woman. And so we see in the book, we see Ruby as a young child, as a young person growing up and trying to understand, you know, how she fits in and, and what her place in this world is. And I like to say that I see Ruby as spending her entire life trying to find her way home. And so for Ruby, the idea of family and kinship and where she's come from turns out to be everything. It's very much a part of what she seeks and what drives her. So it's really her motivation and her motivating force. Throughout the book, there are a number of relationships, what we call in Cree Wakotawin. So this idea of relatedness or relationship. And uh, there are a variety of characters who have the chance to tell their stories or have their stories heard. So characters who are part of her biological family, part of her adopted family, friends, different people who are important to her in her life. And so those stories come to light and then they create this layering for Ruby, a layering about, you know, that gives the reader a greater understanding of who Ruby is and what Ruby's all about. So those connections are really critical to Ruby. They drive Ruby in a lot of ways. If you read the book, you'll see them driving her relationships and how she approaches relationships. Ruby is a bit of a high-spirited character. She's got a lot going on. She has a great big laugh. She, you know, uses this laugh in a variety of ways. Uh, she sort of flings it around to to assert herself or to show people who she is or to deflect from things that she, you know, isn't uh, doesn't want to deal with at the moment. For me, the character of Ruby really came to light for me or really sort of came alive for me when, as a writer, I found Ruby laugh and I was able to then take Ruby even further as a character and be able to develop her you know more complexly and allow it, it just allowed her to open up and do some of the you know kind of wild and crazy things that she does but also to understand more for me her vulnerabilities and her humanity and I think that for readers I want Ruby to be a very human embodiment and a very human character related to indigenous experiences you know under colonization right under this system that has taken us away from our families and tried to assimilate us. So adoption, foster care, social welfare type programs have been a part of that history. You'll also see characters from her background and her family who have been a part of the residential school system, which was another, you know, complicated piece of colonial history that has impacted our realities um, to this day. They have that trickle down effect. So taking kids away from their homes and trying to assimilate and educate them in you know to not be indigenous or not be a part of our indigenous cultures and so that's had impacts all the way down the generations but you know I'm making it sound very serious and really what Ruby is a book about a character and you are able to get to know that character very well through the reading Ruby's story and the story of those that she's related to her Wakotawin. Thank you so much for the opportunity to participate in the Epigraph Literary Festival. Marcy I really appreciate it. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. 
Next, I'd like to introduce you to Nina Lacour, the author of the novel Yerba Buena. Hi, my name is Nina Lacour. I am joining you from San Francisco, California, and I am so happy to be here and to have the opportunity to share my new book with you. It is called Yerba Buena. It is my first novel for adults. I've written several novels for YA readers, and I'm so excited to bring this one into the world. A reader recently described Yerba Buena as a love story nestled within a coming-of-age story, and I think that is exactly right. It follows those two characters, Emily and Sarah, as they fumble their ways through early adulthood. When they first meet, their attraction and connection is very intense, but it just isn't the right time for them yet. They both have a lot of growing up to do before they'll be ready for each other. And this book examines everything around that, what happened in their pasts and what happens along the way on their journey toward each other. The title Yerba Buena comes from two different elements in the book, and each of them play a part in the connection between the two women. One is that Yerba Buena is the name of the restaurant where Sarah and Emily will eventually meet. It's a gorgeous restaurant, a glamorous LA establishment. Um, Sarah will be bartending, Emily will be doing the flowers, and that's when they'll first catch sight of each other. The other reason that it's called Yerba Buena is that it's the name of a herb-like mint that's native to California, and this is a very California novel. Both women are true products of their environments. Sarah is from the wild, drug and poverty stricken, naturally beautiful Russian River area of Northern California. It has ancient redwoods and a wide river that feeds out to the Oakland. It's just, I mean, to the, it has ancient redwoods and a wide river that leads to the ocean. It's just a really gorgeous, rich place. Emily is from Los Angeles and she is the daughter of Creole people who left New Orleans for LA as part of the Great Migration. Her family history is based on my own father's side of my family. I modeled her grandparents' story on my own grandparents and even used details from their wedding and houses and lines from love letters that my grandfather wrote to my grandmother. The big questions that the book asks have to do with how we learn to protect ourselves after trauma and how to understand when it's time to let go of those patterns. Both characters go through some very difficult experiences in their teen years. They are both quite devastatingly affected by drug addiction among the people in their families or the people that they love. They end up being sort of collateral damage to a lot of the struggles um, that are happening around them. And they have to first learn what their role are and how to protect themselves, but then they have to work on dismantling that as they grow up and um, their lives take different shapes. Sarah and Emily are so right for each other, but it will only work out between them if they each are able to grow into who they need to be first. And so we have these moments where their storylines converge and then something tears them apart again. I like to think of this novel as a study of what it takes to truly give and accept love. One of my favorite elements of this book is that even though the two characters are going through a lot of turmoil, there's also a lot of beauty in the book. There's the natural beauty of the Russian River area, there's the cultivated beauty of this glamorous restaurant, and then there's the beauty that they each pursue in terms of their vocations. Sarah is a bartender, she makes these gorgeous cocktails, she believes in presenting them to people as a means of connection and of commemorating 
special moments. And so this is a way for her to connect to people and, and share a moment and not be alone. And then Emily spends a lot of the novel really figuring out who she is and what she wants. And she finally ends up realizing that she wants to carry on the tradition of her grandfather and father and wants to restore old homes. And so there is a lot too that's just about just gorgeous home restoration, wallpaper and plaster and fixtures and just like the beauty of of making a space that feels not only gorgeous to look at, but also really special to exist within those walls. So thank you so much for listening. Yerba Buena comes out on May 31st, and I really hope that you enjoy it. And next up, I'd like to introduce you to Satania Dacres, the author of the book, Dinner for One, How Cooking in Paris Saved Me. Hi, my name is Satania Dakers, and I am the author of the soon-to-be-released memoir, Dinner for One, How Cooking in Paris Saved Me. Um, it's going to be released on June 21st. I'm very excited. I'll just read a bit of the, the, the summary of all of it, actually. From podcast host Satania Dakers comes an unforgettable memoir of love, loss, and delicious food in the City of Lights. When Satania Dakers, me, married her French boyfriend and moved to Paris at 27, she felt like she was living out her very own Nora Ephron romantic comedy. Jamaican-born and Bronx-raised, she had never imagined she herself could be one of those American women in Paris she admired from afar until she met the man of her dreams one night in Manhattan. A couple of years later, she married her French man and moved to Paris, embarking on her own happily ever after. When her marriage abruptly ended, the fairy tale came crashing down around her. Reeling from her sudden divorce and the cracked facade of that picture-perfect expat life, Satania grew determined to mend her broken heart and learn to love herself again. She began by cooking dinner for one. Along the way, she builds friendships, Parisian friendships, learns how to date in French, and examines what it means to be a Black American woman in Paris, all while adopting the French principle of pleasure, especially when it comes to good food. Dreaming with charm and wisdom and including some of her favorite recipes, Satania's story takes readers on an adventure through love, loss, and finding where you truly belong, even when it doesn't look quite how you expected. I'm very proud of this book. I did write it with a lot of heart and honesty and um, hard one wisdom and I am really excited to share my story with the world I hope that you know whoever reads this book walks away with a deeper understanding of how important it is to forgive ourselves to show ourselves just unconditional love and accept who we are as flawed human beings I am excited I'm very proud I'm very nervous but uh, yeah this is um, my story and I, I feel very grateful blessed, and privileged to be able to share it and um, I hope you like it thank you it comes out on June 21st, 2022. So thank you. Alrighty, readers, I hope you enjoyed listening to the audio from the authors who shared their books at the April 2022 Epigraph Literary Festival. If you've read any of these books, please send me an email or send me a message on social media so we can talk about it. And if you're planning to add some of these books to your reading list, I want to hear about it too. I also hope to see you at our next festival, so please register to attend at epigraphlitfest.com. That's epigraphlitfest.com and join us from Thursday, April 27th through to Saturday, April 29th. I'll also include a link in the show notes so you can sign up there. As always, thanks for being here. Thanks for listening. And I'm looking forward to talking with you again soon. Bye for now. Thank you so much for listening to the Reader's Couch podcast. Please subscribe to the show, share it with a friend, and take a few seconds to leave a rating and review. 
Until next time, stay lounging, stay reading, and whenever you're in doubt, go straight to your local bookstore or library. Thanks again for listening and happy reading.